Hello, everybody. Chris Martinson here. And today we're going to be talking about finance and economics as part of Finance U. Remember, anything that you see in this video and all resources available at our websites or affiliated websites are not intended as or construed as financial advice. This is for educational purposes. Remember, if you have a financial decision, please consult a financial professional. We are not attorneys. We're not CPAs. We are not financial managers. As well, we do our best to be accurate and everything we represent is as accurate as we know it to be. Now, let's turn to our program. Hello, everyone. Chris Martinson here with another episode of Finance University and uh, back with Paul Kiker of Kiker Wealth Management. Hey, Paul, how are you? I'm good, Chris. Good to see you again. Yeah, likewise. Uh, so much to discuss. You know, last time we did talk about um, some of the great taking. It's kicked off quite a, quite a, 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 a flurry of inquiry and questioning within my tribe. Also outside of the tribe, I've received a lot of phone calls this past week from people who are concerned, have questions. Um, we're still digging to see what kind of answers we we actually can get. Um, and it's been fascinating. So I can't name names. I can't even I can't even talk entities, but I will say that someone I know and he knows who I'm talking about went to um their their fiduciary trust corporation, right? So they're in a fiduciary, and the fiduciary said, Oh, don't worry about it. You these are hundred percent not on our balance sheet. Good to go. You know, they're yours. So I was like, it was a whole page and a half of of explaining that. And I was like, why don't you ask them where those shares are registered? And then they came back and they said, oh, oh, you mean that? Yeah, yeah. They're with Seed Incorporation and DTCC, right? <laughs> oh, they did begin to state that. Okay. They did state that. And so then, then it was like, and let me ask the follow-up question, which I shouldn't even have to ask, which is, if they get in trouble, what's my exposure? Right. This should be it just should not be like pulling teeth at the dentist without without, you know, anesthetic. These should be simple questions. Yes. And simple answers. So it's been interesting just to see people trying to get answers and we'll get there. But I'm just it's interesting to see the reticence of the system to be transparent. It really is. And and, and I've run into kind of the, the similar situation at first. Everybody's like, oh, it's nothing to worry about, you know, and then you ask that extra question and see corporation comes up again. And then there's mm -hmm. shock and silence like, OK, we don't know how to answer this. So I think everybody's just been busy working along and in the background, they've been doing their thing. And, and you know, hopefully the more people that are informed, the more pressure that we can put on the regulators out there. So interesting yep. yeah no it's interesting and and obviously we're gonna have to keep digging I've, I've been doing a lot of digging to try and get to the you know what do we do and mm -hmm. and it's not it's very much not obvious and not not simple i mean i think david rogers webb is correct the thing you do is you undo these laws right yes um yes. that that'll take time the good news is i think enough people are activated and people of 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 prominence and means and power you know once they catch on to this story i think are going to go well that's weird Right. So maybe, you know, maybe. But but what do we do between here and, and the resolution of that um, is is really the question uh, at hand. So. I actually think, Paul, that that this is I think that this sort of is just what happens when you when you have the, the fox is guarding the hen house and nobody's really looking. Right. Of course, they write laws like this, of course. <laughs> right. And I honestly think that that the genesis of this was that they they 
got really in love with derivatives because derivatives made it appear like risk had been shot into outer space and they loved them and they couldn't imagine life without them. So instead of going in 2009, ah, bad idea. We shouldn't, maybe we shouldn't have had these things in the first place. Let's undo these. They found a way to satisfy these players so that they feel like, oh, oh, well, at least, at least I can be positive that my hedging is, will get paid off. Now right. I can do more of it. Right. And so you go from 2010 when the law was passed to, to today and you have twice as many derivatives, not half as many. Right. And so it went the wrong way. And yeah. and now I'll bet you anything. Nobody knows what, like, like if you, because if you could, let's imagine this, if you could snap your fingers, undo those laws, do you know how many risk models blow up and they have to violently undo those trades? And that alone could be its own adventure. Yes. Or misadventure, right? Misadventure, I would assume. I mean, you take into consideration the average individual, the retail trader is is using options like never before. You've got new products that are coming out, use derivatives and options to short the VIX. And, you know, so you've got this whole casino that's taking place with the large majority of the participants that don't really understand at all the risk that's taking place behind it. So it's it's um, it's a major danger. And I'll, and since this has come up, I go back and think about, OK, in 1929, you know, nobody really considered that the banks could fail. OK, you know, a big recession. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a consideration of the need for FDIC insurance prior to the Great Depression, at least as far as I understand. But then you have the local banks fail and, and it's equal opportunity misery for everyone across the board, except for those who had some assets that were outside the system that they were able to protect. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So so I know you're looking into this. I'm looking a lot of people are looking into this. My my um, uh, what I'm doing personally, and again, remember, all this is education, not financial advice. Uh, for me, is I am, I, I'm, I'm just going to have to study this before I, before I figure out what I got to do about it. Um, so, I think that's the wisest course here is just let's let's study it, let's study it hard. Um, there, there will be some things I think we can do. There, there'll be there'll be ways to um, be less exposed. I assume. So, we'll figure there this out. There will be, and and. And for the average individual, you don't necessarily need a massive amount of resources. So, you know, here's an interesting story going back to the Great Depression. How true family stories are, I don't know. I didn't get to ask the individual, but supposedly we had a, I had a great, great uncle and three weeks before the banks fell locally, went and took $300 out of the bank. Just no specific reason, just had this little gut gnawing inside and went puts it under the floorboard at the house like they did back then. Of course, all the local banks fell. And all of a sudden, land went from a dollar, dollar and 10 cents per acre down to a penny an acre. He took that money and reinvested it in the land and started a, a lumber company back then, which actually carried through into World War II. Most of our family were dedicated to the effort of the, the timber cutting and, and sawmills so that they that was their part of World War II. So you think about it, you know, little resources, if everybody loses everything, if you have something, even if it's like the gold that we've talked about, not a recommendation individually, but if you've got some gold that you're holding on to outside the system as fire insurance against inflation, then that doesn't have a debt or you're taking physical possession of it. That's something that gives you resources when someone else, that, uh, other people don't have them if this comes about. But the one thing yeah. I will say, and a lot of individuals I've talked to, there's no reason to make a panic decision right now. You know, think this through, take your time. You know, the worst thing somebody can do is make a panic decision, liquidate, pay the, you know, retirement accounts, pay the early 10% penalty, plus throw themselves into another tax bracket. 
and then this be something that doesn't come to fruition for 10 more years. So there is time uh, to do the research, and I know you're on it. I'm, I actually started this morning going down an SIPC, the Security Investor Protection Corporation, uh, mm -hmm. which is the... It doesn't protect you against a foolish investment decision, but it, protect, it supposedly protects you up to 500,000 uh, against a broker-dealer failure. So that's the this industry's equivalent of FDIC insurance for the banks. So, and I've learned an amazing amount this morning that I'm not necessarily ready to talk about because there's a couple of more questions that I've got to go through, but, you know, maybe that's something for assets that are still in the system that you can make sure that you're registering in the, in the right manner to, to at least protect, at least then maybe you have the government backing that's behind, you know, considering they may have helped design this, that may not necessarily be great, but at least it's something you can do to be prudent. Yeah. Yeah. So agreed. So we're going to keep looking into that. Um, uh, it, it's been a, a uh, you know, one of the things that came up with with David Rogers Webb. So I, I, I like to show everybody, you know, just from finviz.com, how all the equity markets trade in lockstep across Europe, Japan and the US. Right. You know, doesn't matter which sector, doesn't matter which country. They're like minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day, month to month, year to year. They have these, this high degree of correlation, um, if not simu exact simultaneous behavior. And he just said, yeah, that, that just shows the simulacrum we're in, that the markets are not performing market functions anymore. The markets have morphed into this thing with the Federal Reserve, who I've been a huge critic of. Alan Greenspan, yes. trashed him. Ben Bernanke, trashed him. Yellen, trashed her. Can you, I'm, not so, I'm not as clear about um, where I fall on uh, Powell yet, because he's trying to do some things. But he was also the guy who gave us uh, the doubling of the Fed balance sheet because COVID, right? So that was kind of on his watch for sure. Uh, at any rate, um, but but what I hated was that they always had these mealy mouth, mumbly, you know, full employment, price stability, dual mandate. And I'm like, no, your mandate seems to be making the 0.1% richer because yes. that's the only objective data I can see where you're crushing it. Like that's, that's a clear success. You know, yeah. the price stability, not so much, <laughs> you know? No, price stability, basically their efforts have been to destroy anyone who's run tactical models in the past or tried to operate and invest with what has been historical, historically wise parameters to stay within your investment process. So they've both disheartened, you know, wonderful, incredible individuals. Um, you know, John Husband shared some of the things that he's had to do to adapt to the, to the underlying current that the Fed's put back there. And they're driving everybody into one direction for what I would consider nefarious purposes. I mean, I'd like to think that it was just simple foolishness, but um, but it seems to be more than that because they've really destroyed the markets to an extent. Yeah, that nobody's that dumb, stupid. Um, but what they did was they punished anybody who had a fundamental aspect, right? So I'm a fundamentalist. I want to know. I mean, it used to, I cut my teeth back in the day. Um, this is pre 2008 when everything started to go off the rails from, you know, just computer driven speculative, you know, uh, momentum chasing courtesy of the Fed. I used to go in and I made something of a specialty of reading annual reports and 10 K's and 10 Q's and, and looking and looking at things like understanding the cash flow statement and understanding what an accounts receivable might do on the balance sheet when it comes over into, um, you know, the income statement. Right. So I, I took time to understand that because you can really like you can understand 
dogs from from ponies in this particular nah that all it's just totally useless behavior you know it's irrelevant totally irrelevant and i i deplore that because there are there should be some fundamental grounding and i think we'll get back there again my hat would be make fundamentals great again you know um well and two you've got the rise of etfs or or index funds that have come along in the popularity of the s p 500 index well, those are price insensitive buyers. I mean, once somebody invests into the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ index and their 401k, you know, they're overweighted the Magnificent Seven right now. And that just continues to feed, you know, this absent-minded investing, I guess is the best way to put it. There's, you know, mm-hmm. we're just going to do what the herd does. And, and regardless of the underlying fundamentals of these stocks, we're going to buy them across the board. So, the rise of of those index ETFs and the popularity within 401ks and the fact that since 2008, since January 1st, 2008, the S&P 500 is still the, or U.S. markets in general is only broad asset class that's positive. The general commodities, Goldman Commodity Index is still negative. Emerging markets are still negative and, and developed markets are still negative. So it's it's fed into this monster that it's going to create some problems when when it blows up yeah and so it also the problems also create potentially opportunities unless it blows up real spectacular then we have other issues uh, we got to worry about but um so here's the here's the positive side for me although you have to be super patient to be me um (laughs) i'm convinced that there that all of this speculation now creates um real world difficulties so let me just give you one example I'm 99% sure that you're going to see oil close at or around $80 a barrel on Friday. Why? Because there's $80 billion of calls and puts saddled and max pain where most call buyers and most put buyers lose the most money is at 80. Um, and so now to understand where oil is going, I just have to understand where are all the option players, right? Um, yeah. it's, a, it's a measure you can follow called max pain, which just says, where did most people lose the most money? And surprise, that's where the markets end up more often than not. I mean, it can sometimes, you know, play out, but not usually. And it's really interesting to watch that um, dynamic take out. But while that's happening, I go and I talk to people in the oil business and they're already starting to have to trundle off into tier two acreage in the Permian. And it's, they can't do it at 80. It just doesn't pencil out, not with the inflation they've experienced both on labor and materials, particularly steel. So yes. when you look at this, um, while the speculators are busy playing their fancy ass put call Max Payne game over here, which makes a lot of financial sense, the real world's over here suffering. And I think that creates an opportunity because I look at that and I go, well, someday that's going to create a real shortfall in oil and it's yes. not going to be easy to resolve. And that means the only way we can resolve it is crush demand, which means the price has to go up. Yes. You know? Yes. Well, and that's where you have to look at the fundamentals from a long-term standpoint, which you've done such a great job of, of explaining to individuals is to be successful in the long run in businesses, our lives, you have to make some sacrifices today for a better future, right? So mm-hmm. sacrifice today means you have to be patient. You have to deal with the emotional pain of your brother-in-law, your neighbor, that's a little bit obnoxious to you, that's bragging about how well they're doing in the Magnificent yeah. Seven. I mean, you've got some stocks that are going sideways for a period of time. But it, but when you look at fundamentals like that, you say, it's just simple mathematics. I don't know if it's 24 months from now or if it's 60 months from now. But if I take a portion of my funds and I set them over there from a long-term standpoint, I'm willing to be patient 
That's the sacrifice you're making for the greater reward in the future to protect yourself from the inevitable impact of what's coming. So, yeah. you know, and it is frustrating, especially because, you know, gamma squeezes. I've been in this business 25 years and I didn't talk to anybody about gamma squeezes until really 2020, 2021. And, and we started seeing them in, in 2019 uh, during that period of time. But it's like at first I remember going, what in the world is a gamma squeeze? Like, I should know what this is. And mm -hmm. you, know, you pull out the dictionary and spend two and a half hours figuring it out. And you're like, oh, I understand it. But how in the world, you you know, are these driving the markets as much as they are? It's just because how large derivatives have become. Yeah. Um, for people listening who don't know, this is called knowing your Greeks. Uh, there there are various Greek letters associated with with options. There's put options, which is um, a bet that something's going to fall in price, and a call option, which is a bet something's going to rise in price. And both puts and calls have these Greek letters associated with them. And one of them is gamma. Um, yeah. And so it, it the, the gamma squeeze, as far as I understand it, is uh, correct. I, I may have this exactly wrong. But um, when a, a market maker or when a large participant has a huge position outstanding on one of these things, like let's say they've sold a bunch of puts and all of a sudden it looks like prices are rising, they have to buy those shares to protect themselves mm -hmm. because the gamma is the difference between, I forget what it is exactly, but it's some difference between what their exposure is and the price of the stock or something. So they have to buy, it's a forced buy of the stock because they're they have this derivative Yes. And in order to not to lose their entire lunch on that derivative, they have to buy the buy the stock. Right. Something and, like that. And, and the simple thing is it's forced buying, right? Just the, the easiest way to explain it for the average individual. So you've got you've got institutions that take, you know, agree to a contract at a certain price. And then you have a retail army or an institution or someone at the margin that comes and drives that price higher. And then everybody's trying to mitigate the risk at that point, because theoretically, you know, the market can move enough. And if you don't hedge that, you know, buy insurance each day. And it's similar to the ability to buy in, uh, hurricane insurance and flood insurance while the hurricane's headed towards your home. Mm -hmm. So imagine how you as an individual, if you lived in Florida or somewhere where a hurricane's coming and you have no home insurance, you know, flood insurance, hurricane insurance, and all of a sudden you realize it's coming directly to your home. Now, insurance companies won't sell it to you, but in the markets you can. So you, what would you pay? You're going to pay pretty much anything at that point, reasonable uh, to cover your home while that storm's headed in your direction. It's wise to have it, just trying to use some type of explanation that people could understand what takes place in the markets. Terrible analogy, but gives you an idea. So, you know, again, I blame Greenspan um, <clears throat> for all of this. You know, I think if people really want to understand why why we're so far over the tips of our skis right now, it's because he enabled a lot of behaviors. One, the speculative behaviors saying, hey, if also the too big to fail thing, right? Long-term capital management basically saying, hey, Wall Street, if you're going to screw up, make sure it's big enough that it catches our attention. Then we got you covered. Right. So guess what? Everybody wanted to get bigger and take on more risk. Right. right. Um, and then they had, you know, uh, this this continued fostering of the speculative side of this because Greenspan mistook. He, he thought we were facing this productivity miracle. You know, he's like he kept mumbling about that. Oh, uh, you know, we have so much productivity now. And productivity is just gross sales by gross inputs. Right. So it's basically GDP by labor, if you wanted to look at it that way. And what he was confusing was that our manufacturing was offshoring, so we weren't doing the labor, 
At the same time, he was throwing funny money in, which made the top look good. So it's, of course, you have this productivity miracle, but it doesn't take a genius, let alone a maestro, to resolve that that was just pure fiction, right? And they knew that. that that's, that's my complaint. They had to have known. They couldn't have been that dumb. Right. That's what I was getting ready to ask you. Do you really think that he didn't know that they they had to? But what's okay. e what's easier to tell the American people? Oh, we figured out how to make the markets be great, so your four hundred one k's up. You know, instead of saying, "Yeah, we're shipping all the jobs overseas," and 20, 15, 20 years from now, you're really going to be hurting compared to 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 other countries because we've gutted the manufacturing base in our country. And oh, by the way, if we do end up in a war, we've got to rebuild these manufacturing capabilities and onshore everything in a hurry, which makes us weak. There's but no don't worry. When yeah. that future moment arrives, you'll have a president who will make your borders completely porous and uh, he'll drain your strategic petroleum reserve. <laughs> That's not funny, but sometimes there's things that are just so sad, all you can do is chuckle about them. <laughs> It, it's gallows humor for sure at this stage, but um, yeah. So, so I, I, so here's, here's another thing. Uh, and again, this is uh, just purely for educational purposes. So uh, I was asked a lot of questions this past week. I've had people calling me a lot uh, about the concerns that, that were raised by the great taking. And, and many of the conversations ended on this one area here, which is, you know, what do you think about gold and silver and, and, things like that. And and actually gold and silver, I'll use those as a metaphor for real tangible assets that are that you can purchase and move across borders. Um could be a lot of things that fit into that. Um iridium, gallium, you know, platinum, copper, but just let's just use gold and silver as a as a moniker for that. I truly believe in my heart of hearts, Paul, that we now have something I forget what the number is. 3,000 billionaires in the world. I don't know. There's there's that 0.1% I talk about, it, there's a lot of highly, highly concentrated wealth in the world. Yes. And so my position is that, you know, while they keep silver sort of pegged at 22, give or take a buck, um, you know, while they keep gold under and they're, they're doing hero's work, pull up a monthly chart. I'll do that. Just give me a second here. This, this is actually funny. Watching how hard somebody is working to um, keep gold under a very specific number here um you to go okay. to metals you go to gold let me put this on a monthly basis and let me share this right now um here we go so get rid of that we don't need the ads that's for sure get rid of that so look at this is on a monthly basis this is gold here it is hitting uh back here in 2011 hit around the two thousand dollar mark it just bumped right over that and got slammed back makes this beautiful from a technical standpoint, the cup and the handle. But look at this. Donk, 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 donk. They are, they are working extra hard <laughs> to, to keep this uh, you know, pretty well contained at this point in time. And they've done a they've done a very good job, but there's also been buyers coming at at higher lows. So, you know, the question is, is the water keep getting deeper and the basketball keeps getting underwater? And at what point does the water get above the breathing ability of the powers that be that are holding it down. And then you see gold prices drop, you know, spike up yeah. dramatically, especially if yes. we break out of that range, they're going to move quickly and strongly. They, they, they will. And so here's, here's my point. I, I maybe it's just fresh on my mind. Cause I interviewed uh, Mike Maloney yesterday for off the cuff and that'll be coming out next week. Um, and, and, you know, Mike has been in the business for a long time 
And so my question is, I love talking to people who've, who've got the gray hairs and just say, hey, uh, you know, I was there in 2008 when gold silver got absolutely mauled, right? It went from 12 to eight, right? Doesn't sound like a lot, but mm, it was going to have to go back up 50% just to get back to even, right? It, it was a pretty big smasheroo, right? And it happened overnight in the Asian markets. And my metaphor at the time, Paul, was like, that's like, that's like a cattle auction went bad in Hawaii and Oklahoma woke up and found out its its cows are worth, you know, 33% less, you know? Oh, that's a great analogy, Chris. That's <laughs> very well done. I like that. But that was the new price, you know? And and so I've watched these desperate games for a really long time, and I believe that they'll play the games until such time as the games no longer work. And then, so the question is, hey, what happened to your supply chains back then? Because barely anybody was invested in silver. There wasn't like a Reddit you know, silver stacking, Wall Street silver, you know, thing. There weren't people posting pictures of their most recent junk silver purchase. None of that. Uh, it was a pretty small crew. And just that small crew, because I bought more, <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I love cheaper silver. Yes. Um, yeah. Even though I was annoyed at, at the how it operated, I, I, I didn't like the market function, but I, I enjoyed the cheaper price. We crushed, you and I, and people like us, we crushed the silver supply chain that's when i found out how thin it was right yes. just just a few diehard silver bugs went out bought a few extra boxes or bags and next thing you knew it was like a six-week wait to even get more so yes. mike said not only that they ran out of gold so he he was he was one of the primary dealers in the situation meaning they have a direct line to the mint they've okay. got direct line to the to the national warehouses they couldn't get anything for weeks on end just no orders filled gone I remember the shortages because I was looking to buy gold and silver at the time and calling everybody that you can call. And there was one company I found that that had some because they mostly yeah. deal with institutions. And and then they started running into troubles later as well. Yeah. So it, it's one of those great moments. Like I live in a free country. Silver's eight dollars an ounce. You just can't have any. Like <laughs> it's not oh, how this is, is supposed to work. <laughs> this is the price. We know you'll pay more for it if you can get it, but you can't get it. So we're going to set the price down here. I know it's just <laughs> ridiculous. But you know, yeah, the interesting thing is that the, the average individual who's not aware of what you've been educating, I remember calling people and friends and I'm like, look, silver's been cratered. Buy any you can get your hands on. They're like, you know, markets down, real estate's going down, silver goes down. So they're like, no, I, I think it'll go lower. I'm too scared to do anything or the system's going to come apart. And so it, it's the rare individual that actually takes advantage of that, unless they've got somebody like you that's pointing it out, not as advice, right? But just, you know, and myself uh, individually or those that you have educated so they understand those opportunities when they arise. Uh, yeah. And I just want people, I mean, I just, if I can really emphasize, this is a tiny, tiny market it's yes. pathetically tiny the it's hard to get good numbers on this but there's some estimate that there's maybe a billion ounces of investment grade silver out there yeah. great it whatever it is today i'll call it 22 at 22 dollars an ounce that means 22 billion dollars owns 100 percent of the silver market across the world which just to put this in context it's about half what elon musk paid for twitter is a hobby project yeah. right so the point here is, is that is that if once those two, three thousand billionaires say, I just want some exposure, it's over. Right. And, and and I think the one thing that we learned through all of this is that we don't live in a free and open, fair society. There are people who have unequal access to the law, to the financial products, to the 
So when the billionaires say, I want a million ounces or 10 million ounces of silver, they have a different pipeline mm -hmm. <laughs> than I do, <laughs> right? They do. So point, point being, if you don't have some, you should. And, you know, because I do think it's a light switch moment. We'll just wake up one day and, you know, price will have gone up $40 an ounce on silver or something. And, but you, you won't be able to get it at that price. No. It'll no. be higher, but, you you know, you'll have to wait six weeks. And then you wait six weeks, but guess what? You can't lock the price in with anybody because they won't do that. And six weeks later, it's now twice that. Oh, and there's another four-week wait. Yeah, it's just it'll be like people will be chasing that for a while because um, that's how the system is is set up. That's right. And and from a long-term investing standpoint, now don't get me wrong, tactical investing means you're moving as you see things adjust. And that that's very important with these manipulated markets the way that they are. But there's also a period of time where you look at certain investments and you say, okay, mathematically, this is where the ball's going. So mm -hmm. think about it from this standpoint. You know, you take an individual like Dave Ramsey, which I think unbelievably highly of, okay, the, the impact that he makes on people and teaching them how to budget and oh. is incredible but he is you know openly states don't buy gold right you've got your major institutions i know without naming names some of the other institutions are you know will be like we won't even buy gold for you or we don't have any allocation towards it so you take bitcoin for example some of the major institutions are starting to offer products that are out there we're starting to see that coming to the mainstream at what point does the, the price of gold and silver have to move before these institutions change their perception about that? And then you've got an, another dramatic move higher in the price once that takes place because that's supply and demand. So those that are in with some as an insurance policy from a long-term standpoint, yes, you're going to have to be patient. But, you know, I could argue that if gold was to break above this most recent level of support, the more energy that goes into that level and the more energy there is to take to drive that price down, once it breaks through, you know, similar to, to the gamma squeeze we talked about, everybody's scrambling in the other direction to cover themselves and that price moves relatively dramatically quickly. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm speaking, I'm speaking like um, some old guy language here because because I really believe in commodities, you know, and the whole system has hated commodities. But it was years, years, years ago, I was talking with Jim Sinclair, famous uh, finance, finance guy. And he said, hey, Chris, it's the great pendulum. People move from fascination with things over to paper. We're in the middle of this big, giant paper fascination. And then it'll go back to things again. Um, and, and so I just want to make sure I'm on the right side of that pendulum swing because fascination with all things paper. I think Bitcoin fits into that now because it's kind of like it's a it's a fantasy product in the sense of how Wall Street's going to manage it. Right. They get to put ones and zeros on a on a hard disk that you see an electronic statement that says I own this thing. And that's easier for them to manage than a vault that has physical gold. They, they let's be clear. Western countries have been antagonistic to gold for a long time and word and print. Yeah. They denigrated barbers relic. They they. You know, anytime gold goes down, Market Watch has a, a gleeful article, you know, gold smashed, you know, within minutes, you know, it's just it's how it's been for a long time. Right. And I predict that will change again. Um, but it's amazing how much we hate commodities in this country, like corn, wheat, oil, lumber, cows. I mean, it's just it's just been it's been nowhere to be for my entire adult lifetime. Right. Yeah. Well, and those are the things that we have to have to operate in the society we have today. We need the foods to live on to, to just to continue to survive and thrive as individuals. 
I think we've taken for granted just the the forces that have taken place in the industry. You know, you have big industry comes into the farming. You know, I'm not a big believer that any foreign entities who own any of our farmland, but mm -hmm. they come in there and they drive the price down to try to drive out your your local individuals. I mean, it's just business, right? And I, I don't agree with the outcome of that, but it continues to drive prices down. We take it for granted. And it wouldn't take much to cause those prices to rise dramatically over time as well either. Yep. Yep. So so let me just pull this up because um, uh, I believe that, that this shift is already starting to happen. So everybody's heard about like um, uh, that, that um, Bill Gates has bought a lot of farmland, right? But when we get to this whole idea of you'll own nothing, right? And owning farmland is really critical. So this just came up uh, today, Reuters reporting, oh, investment funds are stocking up on U.S. farmland in safe haven bet. So when mm -hmm. we talk about investment funds, these, I mean, these these are the people they say here and they have become voracious buyers of U.S. farmland, amassing over a million acres as they seek to hedge against inflation and da, 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 da. But we're starting to see this this money that the so Federal Reserve prints money, hands it out gobs of it get created in the banking system some of it floods into these so-called investment funds and then they go out and then they buy real stuff with it when there's nothing more real to me than productive farmland um so this is already happening mm -hmm. um, it's taking place and you know when you look at it from a long-term standpoint you don't have to say it out loud but if you really do believe that our currency is at risk and you're a you're an, on an institution level where are you going to go you're going to buy those producing assets like you said when argentina's inflation the assets didn't go anywhere there were mm -hmm. some assets that didn't do as good as others but what are the most value you know what are the most valuable assets what do we need for society to function farmland water you know commodities energy oil um so you see a lot of these big institutions and and wealthy individuals moving in that direction quickly, um, more so now than we did 15 years ago when there were whispers about concerns about the collapse of our currency. Yep. Um, speaking of which, purely educationally, I, I'm getting very intrigued with Argentina as a um, as a as a pick on the emerging side. Reason is there was a headline article came out two days ago that Exxon is looking to expand one of their pipelines out of what's called the Vaca Muerta shale play. So they have a shale play that looks like it may be as big as the Permian. Now, it's Argentina, shot through with corruption, really horrible laws, all of this and that. However, for Exxon to say they're, they're ready to put a 60,000 barrel per day takeaway pipeline in, this changes everything for Argentina because as soon as you can become an oil exporting nation, you're suddenly rich again, like like yes. money is flowing in the correct direction. And that's happened not for so long that it is where it is. But um, this is actually a world class play is everything I've been studying about it. So I actually think that it's in, it's intriguing to me now, um, just eyeballing that. So hopefully Argentina can get its act together and, um, you know, not uh, trip on its own tied together shoelaces and and somehow screw this deal up. But um, it's it's I just throw that out there as an intriguing thing for people to begin pondering. Yes, and not only not only Argentina, but mostly all of South America. There's some very interesting potential opportunities in that area that have our focus and attention because you're commodity heavy producers. You're you've got uh, countries that can get along with the U.S. and the BRICS. 
So, you know, it's always nice to have someone if the U.S. is is in negative relationship with the BRICS that can do business with both, but they have the things that everybody around the world needs. And a mm -hmm. lot of those countries' uh, indexes have done nothing since 2004, you know, the 2008 crisis collapse happened. And they, I mean, they're up a little bit from the bottom, but they really haven't gone anywhere for 15 or 16 years. So overlooked mm -hmm. opportunities in that area uh, are what we see. Well, great. Um, I have to cut this short because I'm about to uh, go to another interview, which I'm very excited about. Everybody, you can watch that next week. Uh, it's with a, a gentleman named Simon Michaud. He is a professor of uh, geology and metallurgy who, who does the resource view of can we even do green energy as a concept? Is there enough copper, lithium, et cetera? It's, it's just everybody should be familiar with that. So I want to let people know that's coming. Um, and we've been talking with Paul Kiker of Kiker Wealth Management. Again, if you want to talk to Paul and his team, go to peakfinancialinvesting.com and just fill out a quick little form and somebody on Paul's team will get right back to you. You deserve to have a broker, uh, a financial advisor, um, a financial planner who who can uh, speak your language. So, yes. Paul, thanks for your time today. Sorry we had to cut it short because I could keep going. No worries, Chris. Always a pleasure. Look forward to the next interview, too. Excellent. See you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, Chris Martinson. I'm the CEO of Peak Prosperity and also Peak Financial Investing. And after watching that, you're probably wondering, well, what do I do with my money? Look, you both deserve and need somebody who can talk to you about what's really going on in this world, understand the situation as it is, not be steering you towards certain things that don't make sense for you or just keep you in a game that's already ended. Look, if you want to talk to somebody about the petrodollar declining or what is happening with gold or which sectors are actually the best ones to be in, given what the Federal Reserve is up to or the federal government, you deserve to talk to somebody who can answer those and has a few gray hairs and has been there through some of the economic cycles because, hey, we're in another economic cycle, so it's good to have that experience. Fortunately, at Peak Financial Investing, what we do is we go out and we scour and we look for the very best firms out there who satisfy one thing above all else. They've got great experience coupled to great customer service. So if you want to come by peakfinancialinvesting.com, there's a very simple form you can fill out, just a few fields, you hit send, what happens is an email gets triggered out. It goes to uh, an endorsed firm of ours. You will get an email back. You can then set up a phone call for a 30 to 45 minute free, no obligation, no pressure call to find out if this firm is a good fit for you and to find out if you're a good fit for the firm. It has to go both ways. And if all that matches up, this will be one of the best things that could happen to you this year. So please come by peakfinancialinvesting.com. Very simple process. We would love to help you if we can. Thanks very much.